Hello, and welcome to First Importance, the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer today is that you will be blessed and encouraged by the message to come. If you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. We'll begin today in verse 43, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. As you're turning there, I want to let you know about uh, something that is important to me, something that I celebrate. I don't know if you know, I celebrate April the 25th, 425. Every year I celebrate 425. It's a very special occasion. Do you guys know what I'm talking about, 425, what April the 25th is? Does anyone know what the, what's that? No, it's not Bo's birthday. I do celebrate that day. It's a few days before. This is a more profound answer that I'm looking for here. Every April the 25th, I celebrate an event that has gone down in the history of the Arkansas Razorbacks as... Uh, one of the miracles that has happened in our football program. Now, it did not happen on April 25th. It happened in November of 2015, and it happened on the Ole Miss football field. Maybe you'll understand what I'm talking about when I say that we were 4th and 25. 4th and 25. For over an hour, the Arkansas Razorbacks and the Ole Miss Rebels were going back and forth, scoring, and the game ended in a tie, or the regulation ended in a tie. A missed field goal by the Arkansas, or a blocked field goal by the Arkansas Razorbacks caused us to end the regulation game tied in score 45 to 45. Ole Miss got the ball first in overtime. They scored, and now the Razorbacks had to go to work. They are uh, uh, popping at this time. They're trying to really make a name for themselves in the SEC. That's what we Razorbacks do. We're in the football program. We're just trying to make that name back for ourselves. They're, they're going down, and uh, the Razorbacks have a series of events that are very unfortunate that leaves them uh, with uh, 25 yards to go on a fourth down. It is an impossible situation. And of course, all Razorback fans were watching the game saying, of course, he should not have thrown that last ball. Of course, they should have ran or they should have done this or they should have done that. Of course, we could have all, uh, uh, we could have all coached that game better. We feel like that here they are, fourth and 25. The team lines up and Brandon Allen, the quarterback, stands on the 45-yard line. Alex Collins to his left. The ball is snapped. He goes back five yards. He waits. He has all the time in the world and he sees Hunter Henry over to the side on the right. He is well short of the first down marker, but it is a lot closer than where he is. And so he launches the ball, a great pass all the way to Hunter Henry. He catches it and he is almost immediately met with Ole Miss uh, getting ready to tackle him, taking him down to the ground. And Hunter Henry grabs the ball and he launches it back behind him. He launches it back, and it goes back to the 40-yard line. It seems like an even worse situation than before, and it lands in the midst of both Arkansas Razorback and Ole Miss players when Alex Collins reaches down, picks up the ball, and in heavy traffic takes that ball uh, uh, 15, 20, no, takes the ball 20, 30 yards, doesn't he? 
He takes the ball 30 yards for a first down. It is unbelievable. We are watching this game. There is screaming and shouting going on in the Hall House. We are celebrating, you know, pretzels or whatever was in our lap is everywhere now. We are celebrating two more plays, Arkansas Razorbacks. Uh, uh, win or tie the game and, or they, they store, score a touchdown and then go for it in, uh, uh, go for the extra point or they go for the extra two point conversion. They win the game. It is a wonderful, wonderful game. It's one of those games. Razorback fans, do you know what I'm talking about? Are there a few of you out there? Oh man, I think I get some amens at least at the beginning here. But we're dreaming now. We're thinking back to those good old days, all right? And, it's one of those things that you really had to see to believe. Because who could imagine that you would just take that football, throw it back just randomly, and that your teammate in high traffic could get that ball and still take it back 30 yards for a, a first down. It's something you had to see to believe. Perhaps you've heard that saying, seeing is believing. But what I want to illustrate for you today in our passage of Scripture is that the kingdom of God is actually the exact opposite. And the kingdom of God seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. John chapter 4, let's begin in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. At Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed. And all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come to Judea, to Galilee. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray that now as we study your word, that you would illustrate to your people, that you would show us from your word that seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Would you somehow now get in much the, amidst my mumbling and fumbling? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint me for the task of this honor of preaching your word. And Lord, that you would speak to your people today as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A reminder, our study through the gospel of John centers around this one center theme believe believe all of the book of john is written so that we might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing we may have a life in his name this book was written not just for the church at the time that 
was in existence, but today to the church here at First Baptist in West Memphis, so that your belief might be cultivated, so that your belief would not uh, go backwards into doubt, but so that your belief would become fruitful and would, would be fruitful to good works and to a uh, good witness and to the, the community that we live. The book of John is written that we might believe. And today we're going to see how this belief works. We're going to see that believing precedes our seeing. For the purpose of our study today, I have divided our text into four sections. If you're taking notes, number one, I want you to see today in our account, the searching Savior. The searching Savior. Look with me in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. See with me here in these verses, the searching Savior. The scripture says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came to seek and to save those who were lost. That was the mission of Jesus. And just a reminder for you, perhaps you've forgotten where we were. In chapter 4, we're going to illustrate just how Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus, in, when we begin our text today, is, at the, is in the midst of revival. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. It is radical. At the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus had to leave Judea and head north toward Galilee. And of all the roads that he could have taken, he chose to take the road through Samaria. It was realistically out of his way, but he had a divine appointment. He was the God who goes out of his way. He was going to a group of people that everyone had given up on to find a woman that even everyone who had been given up on had given up on to bring salvation to her life. Jesus met that woman at the well, and he dramatically changed everything about her. A woman filled with sin and shame had come to know Jesus, and now she was no longer filled with sin that had been atoned for. Neither was she filled with shame as she ran out into Samaria and began to proclaim that she has met the Messiah. And a crowd begins to come around her. When we looked at this study, I said that she was the worst of the worst, telling the worst about the best of the best. That's our job as believers. We're the worst of the worst, telling the worst about the best of the best. Jesus is in the midst of revival. Samaria is seeing people come to know him. Lives are being changed. He left a place. He is leaving a place here in verses 43 and 44. He's leaving a place that everyone thought was barren, but turned out to be an oasis. And he's now coming to a place that everyone thinks is fertile, only to discover that it is nearly desolate. He'll come now to his own people, to Galilee. He come to his own people, and they're going to treat him much differently than Samaritans. Jesus does what no modern evangelist or any evangelist during any time would ever do. He left a, a thriving revival because he knew his time was short and his appointment, his divine appointment, had nothing to do with the applause that was around him, but by the direction that was above him. And so Jesus leaves Samaria. 
verse 44 teaches us that he's going to a place that he knows he will not be accepted. He will not be loved. He quotes the scripture. He says, a prophet may have honor everywhere else, but when it comes to his own hometown, there's no honor or celebration for him, which brings us to our second point today. You saw first the searching Savior, but notice with me in verses 45 through 46, the curious crowd. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. When we come into verse 45, we learn that the Galileans knew who Jesus was. On the surface, this move from Samaria to Galilee might have seemed like a really good idea to the disciples. I mean, after all, if the Samaritans are turning to him, we can't wait till he goes to his own hometown. The Samaritans welcomed him at first, and then, or the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus at first, but later they did, and now it's going to be the exact opposite in order. He's going to come to his own hometown, to his own home area where everybody knows him, and he will not be welcomed. Not really. Not really. The Bible says here that they will welcome him, but there also reveals to us that there were some ulterior motives. You know, Sarah and I went yesterday, took the family to BB, Arkansas, uh, where I grew up to be with my mom and dad who were celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. And you know, every time I drive into BB and I see that sign, I'm surprised that they have not changed the wording on that sign. I've requested it several times. The sign says, BB, your dream hometown. But I want amended underneath that, boyhood home of Josh Hall. But for some reason, <laughs> it's never there. For some reason, my, my attempts, I mean, surely they would see of the fame of Josh Hall. They'd be proud of their, of their uh, hometown boy. But you know what? When Jesus came into Galilee, the Bible says here that he was welcomed, but Jesus knew he wasn't really welcome. You see, they were just curious. They had seen the things that had happened in Jerusalem. They had all traveled to Jerusalem. You remember back in John chapter 2? When Jesus walks into the temple complex and he clears it out, remember how he walks in and he sees the abuses that are going on in the temple complex and so he runs everybody out. They had seen that take place and they were ready to see what Jesus would do again. As a matter of fact, a part of this Galilean crowd was probably people who were at the wedding in Cana. And in chapter 2, they had seen how Jesus had turned the water into wine. And they were interested in a show. They were curious about Jesus. They didn't really care about his message. As a matter of fact, his message was something they didn't want to hear altogether. He was better off for them when he was opening other people's mouths, not his own. He was always better when he was opening the, the side of the blind rather than when he was trying to share with them their own spiritual blindness. You see, Jesus wasn't truly welcomed in Galilee. The Galileans were just curious. He was just another show. It's like going to watch, it's like people gathering around to watch a professional feed a crocodile. They're just there for the show. Either way, they're getting a show. If there's a slip, there's a show, okay? And so for Jesus, 
For Jesus, they're going to see someone have a miracle in their lives, or they're going to see him arrested and abused, and they love that. Either way, as long as it didn't really affect them, they wanted to see a show. And so they gathered around him. The Bible says that they welcomed him, but we've already learned that they didn't really welcome him. They had a general curiosity about Jesus. By the way, don't mistake your curiosity for Jesus for Satan faced. Jesus isn't your hobby. And Jesus uh, does not exist just for your entertainment purposes. Do not mistake general curiosity in Jesus or in the things of God for being one of his children. It's not the same thing as will be illustrated today. The Galileans were excited. They wanted to gather around him. They wanted to see a miracle. And yet Jesus will not give them what they want to see. They're gathered around. They, they, they want to see a sign. They want to see a miracle. But Jesus doesn't care about tickling ears. He doesn't care about entertaining they're waiting on a show, and Jesus refuses to give it to them. But verse 46, we see not only the curious crowd, but we see the desperate father. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to ask him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Here, Jesus encounters a real, authentic person who is desperate for him. This time, instead of an outcast at a well, he meets a prominent man who comes searching for him. We know that this official uh, uh, was a prominent. He perhaps worked in the court of Herod. Uh, he obviously is well-to-do. He has servants, and so he is a man of means. He is a man who is respected. And the move that he makes, he's going to travel an entire day's journey uphill. He's going to leave his son's deathbed because he hears that Jesus has come to a town that is closer to him. Can you imagine the infighting that must have occurred in that household and what the community must have thought of him as he left? He's leaving his son's deathbed to go find some random rabbi and teacher who uh, we've heard rumors of, but we've, we have no indication. We've not seen that he's brought any healing upon anybody. He leaves his son's deathbed and he goes to find Jesus, a day's journey away. He's not even close. In case it just, in case it goes south really fast, he's not going to be there to be with his own, with his son as his son takes his last breath. He is desperate. He is persistent. He travels that day's journey. He sets aside all his pride and he approaches Jesus. And he asks Jesus this question, will you come and will you heal my son? Now, as we look at this, there's a few things I want you to understand. Affliction and tragedy have beautiful purpose in our life. I believe, uh, A.W. Pink says, that affliction is God's medicine. God allows things to happen in our life that are unpleasant, 
God orchestrates those things in our lives so that we will learn to lean more on him, so that we will learn not to endear ourselves to the things of the world. I was speaking with a dear friend of mine, Rick Couples, across the street at Couples Bible Bookshop, and I, I was talking to him about his wife who had passed away several years ago, and I was saying, brother, you know, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm still praying for you. I love you. Tell me about that and, and, and the transition, what's going on in your life, and he he was talking about the pain. He said, you know, one of the things I've learned is all that love I had for Carol. Now I've taken all that love that I've given to her, and I can just give all that much more love back to Jesus. You see, affliction has a way of taking our eyes off the things on this world and pointing them back to Jesus. So when trials come your way, when affliction comes your way, when difficulties come your way, don't look at them as being purposeless and oh, why me, why me? Look at them as being opportunities to draw you closer to Jesus. Now, I know I'm saying this from a perspective right now that seems to have everything good going in my life. Brothers and sisters, I assure you that when you go through affliction, God has a purpose for it. And here this official, this prestigious man, his son lays on his deathbed. This affliction pushes him to Jesus. He travels a day's journey uphill, and he begs Jesus for his son's healing. Come to my house and heal my son. And then Jesus does what only Jesus could do. Verse 48. So Jesus says to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is not the kind of Jesus that we've become accustomed to. I mean, we're kind of accustomed to the Jesus who says, yes, my child, whatever you want, my child, I'll do whatever you want, my child. And yet Jesus is going to give this scathing rebuke. This rebuke is not only to this official, but to all of the Galileans who've gathered around to see a show. The you in Greek here is plural. He's speaking to the crowd. They've gathered around, and he doesn't cater to them. He has a mission to please the Father. He will not allow their applause to get in the way. They're looking for a sign. Now, it's almost here that you, you forget. These are his people. I mean... Jesus is the one who has taken care of them all along. He's the one who called out to Abraham. Uh, Abraham. He is the one who saved them from Egypt. He's the one who's taken care of them. If anyone should have known who Jesus was, it was his own people. But John chapter 1 says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. They were looking for a sign. It's almost like Jesus had to say, what else do you want? I've taken care of you all this time and you don't even recognize me. You don't love me. You don't see me as worthy of serving. They're looking for a sign. In Luke chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says that this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The crowd obviously is irritated at the response of Jesus. They didn't gather around to hear him talk. They wanted to see him act. 
And so the official continues. He's desperate. He's unswayed by Jesus' response. The official persists. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, this is a term of lordship. This is a term of understanding that Jesus has authority. He says, Sir, come down before my child dies. When it comes down to it, even though Jesus had rebuked them, he understood this. His son was still miles away and on his deathbed unless Jesus would do something about it. His son lay helpless. No one could help him, but only one. And so the official persists. The rebuke doesn't push him away. It draws him in closer. Jesus, you're my only hope. At that point, he could have said, oh, Jesus isn't going to do this. I need to go find something else. No, he persists. He goes on, Jesus, you're my only hope. And then Jesus does it. And only the way that Jesus would do these kind of things. It's the miracle that you have to believe to see. Because the Galileans didn't see this. Only one saw this miracle the miracle that you'd have to believe to see. Verses 50 through 54. Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. Go. Your son will live. If you blink, you miss the miracle that occurs here. A miracle you have to believe to see miles away. A fever and illness is taking the life of his precious child. And miles away... Hearing the voice of Jesus, this fever, this illness departs this young man. At Jesus' very word, because of course, fevers and sicknesses and illnesses, even nature obeys God's commands. The only ones who seem to have the audacity not to do that are the fallen angels and then of course, us. Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Perhaps a greater miracle occurred right here. With zero evidence, the man believes the words of Jesus. With zero evidence before him, he takes Jesus at his word I believe that what Jesus said is true and that he is taking care of my son. Without seeing a miracle and being at least a day's journey away, he believes. And friends, I want you to see that's the type of faith that Jesus gives. That's the type of faith that we're given to call upon Jesus and repent of our sins. The type of faith that Jesus gives defies human logic and reasoning. It's the type of faith that Jesus gives to his people. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God, seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Trusting that God is good for his word. Relying upon his word. His word is good enough for me. Jesus, you said it. I believe it. No matter what happens in my life, 
No matter what difficulties may come our way, we know that our God has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. We know we have a God who has provided for us so that we wouldn't spend an eternity separated uh, from his grace and mercy and love in a place called hell, but that we could be in fellowship with him forever in a place called heaven. Not because we can see it, not because it's right in front of us, but because defying all uh, logic and reasoning around us, we believe that God is good for his word. It's the type of faith Abraham had. Being old in years, constantly promised by God that he would give him a child. And now he was well past the ability to have children, he and his wife. They had gone for years sojourning in a land that was promised to them that they still had not received from God. It was, the deed was, was still not in their hand. Here he is, old in years, and God tells Abraham, despite everything around him saying to the contrary, Abraham, I'm going to bring through you a son. And the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. You see, faith is almost always in exact opposition to everything that is apparent around us. It looks like the times are dark. It looks like the world is without hope. And yet we, as believers, trust that God is good for his word. Moses, when standing in front of the Red Sea with the enemy behind him, still had to put out his arms. He looked kind of foolish if he'd done that in the Red Sea, just stayed down on itself. When it, he'd done this, look and see. And then he'd been stoned from behind as all the rest of them were saying, here's Moses, take us back to Egypt and don't do anything else. And yet he put those arms out and then God opened the Red Sea for God's people to walk in. You see, faith precedes seeing. Belief precedes seeing. Saying for believers is not seeing is believing. The saying is, believing is seeing. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. The, the official believes Jesus, and he starts heading back. He's heading back home. He's confident God has taken care of everything. And on the way, headed home, he is met by his servants. They're deeply concerned, I imagine, that he's going to look like a fool if he gets a hold of this teacher. And they say, hey, he's better. He's better. Something happened yesterday. Uh, it was around this time. He is so much better. Please don't go make a fool of yourself. And he says, hey, I know. I know what time it was. I can ask you, but I know what time it was because it was the time that Jesus said. When Jesus said, your son will live, that's when he got better. And the Bible says that he and his family believed. So let me ask you this question. What's standing in your way from believing? Does God got to perform another sign for you? Oh, if he'll just do this in my life. Maybe in pain, you said, if he'll just, if he'll just save my loved one who is dying, I can serve him. Or if he can just provide for this for me physically or monetarily, well, then I can serve him. Or if he'll just make me happy then I will serve him. Friends, I want you to know that genuine belief says this. 
believing is seeing. You don't got to see it to believe it. God's given us his word testifying to who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. And there's coming a day that we'll see it. But right now, friends, just like that official, you got to believe to see. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.